but I dress appropriately. I've got pink on. Uh, borrowed my wife's pink water bottle. Um, Emma's in pink, um, and so um, yeah, it's all about it's all about love, but it's not about who you think. Uh, so that's why we titled um, tonight's sermon. I titled tonight's sermon "Love My Who." Um, so as we think about that, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight um, in awe of who you are um, and the work that you do um, in this world, um, whether we are involved or not. I just pray that tonight you use me, speak through me, override my preparations, um, and let uh, the, the congregation hear from you um, through me um, about who we are called to love. Um, we just thank you so much for the time of preparation um, and, and diving more into your word and learning more about you. Um, we just ask that uh, all these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, so this should actually say Matthew uh, 5, not Mark. Um, so Matt, we're going to be in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Um, but any, any other guesses on who, who we should love? Love my I don't know, wife, we've got wife, uh, children, uh, friends, family. Um, my God, yes, we should always love God. Uh, but tonight, um, we are going to be talking about loving our enemies. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's not me uh, that's saying it, it's the Bible. Uh, so uh, we're going to get right into uh, the scripture. Let's go back. There we go. Nope, this is where we want. Uh, You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight, as we talk about loving our enemies, uh, we're going to talk about who our enemies are, how we love them, and why we love them. Now, before we get too far into that, though, I want to make this part clear here, that this isn't a statement alluding to the fact that we can earn our way into the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we know that it says we have been saved by grace through faith. It's nothing that we did. It's a gift. It's not by works, so we can't say that we got there on our own. Some Christians tend to shy away from the Sermon on the Mount Um, because of all of the conditional statements, the if-then statements. But like we see here, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of God. But John Piper has another thought on how this might go. He says, it means that we love our enemies, we prove ourselves to be in God's family. If you love your enemies the way God loves his enemies, then you show that you are a child of God. You are seen to be a child of God. Loving your enemy doesn't pay for your birth into God's family. It proves you've been born into God's family. 
See, loving your enemies isn't a way for us to earn salvation. It's as John Piper puts it, evidencing salvation. Let me put it this way. I didn't become a Vaughn once I showed that I could sing or play a musical instrument well. There wasn't a test. I was born a Vaughn on December 19th, 1985, and it's because of who my parents are and their talents and the way that I was brought up that I'm able to sing and play an instrument. It's the same way with our Heavenly Father. We are who we are because of who He is. We can love our enemies because of who He is and how we grow in our faith. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's actually one of my points later on. So let's get um, back into the text. Some people also point to this um, as potentially a contradiction in the word, right? Because it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that in the Old Testament it actually says that we, that we can hate our enemies? Let's see. So as we can see here, this is when Jesus was being tempted uh, by Satan. In Matthew 4.4, 4, we see, he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Matthew 4.7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew 4.10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So what do we see here? What are the, what are the common phrases? It is written, right? Back to the question, did the Old Testament say it was okay to hate your neighbors? Well, as we've been reading in our uh, daily reading Bible, we're in the Levitical laws. Um, <clears throat> but in Leviticus 19.18, 19, 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Last time I checked, Leviticus was in the Old Testament, or is in the Old Testament. And notice what Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 5. He doesn't say it is written you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, you have heard it said. See, Jesus is actually responding to a misinterpretation by the Pharisees of that verse in, Levitic in Leviticus. The Bible isn't contradicting itself. It wasn't then, it hasn't since, and it never will. Our Bible, the God's word, is perfect. It's inerrant. Now, the misinterpretation the Pharisees had was around the word neighbor. Some people of that day, and let's be honest, some people today, uh, your neighbor can just mean your friend or brother or maybe even your literal neighbor. But Jesus didn't mean it when, asked, when, um, when he um, said it that way. When he was asked, who's my neighbor, he replied with a parable. It's one that we're all familiar with, but I'm going to go ahead uh, and read it. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. Now, the he here is actually a lawyer. Seems like every time Jesus uh, gets into speaking about parables, there's some lawyer trying to disprove who he is. And uh, he asked him about the law, and he said, I need to love my Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you have spoken correctly. And so he's like, well, well who's my neighbor? So we see Jesus reply here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. Now, the priests of that day are like our pastors today, the lead um, person of the church. Um, They were also responsible for um, bringing sacrifices, um, giving the sacrifices that the people would um, offer to God. So the priest, the head honcho, he's walking down the street, sees this guy, moves to the side on the road. He passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. Levites were kind of like the other assistants in the churches. Your deacons, uh, worship leaders, maybe a youth pastor. Um, so he, uh, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now the reason this parable would have had such an impact on the people that heard it is because the man who was injured was a Jew, and the one who showed mercy was a Samaritan. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It's kind of like um, the sharks and the jets. Has anybody seen West Side Story? Just me and John, I guess. Um, But why? Why did they hate each other? Well, uh, it all comes and kind of stems from the 12 tribes of Israel. See, the 12 tribes of Israel divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 722 BC, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, and took most of its people into captivity. But then the Assyrians brought back Gentile colonists from places like Babylon, uh, Katha, Ava, Hamath, and uh, from Sepharvaim. Uh, uh, we see this in 2 Kings 17, uh, 24. So they brought them in to resettle the land. They also brought with them their pagan idols, which the remaining Jews in that area uh, began to worship alongside the God of Israel. There was also intermarriages taking place. Um, so people, the Jewish people there were intermarrying with the Gentiles, still worshiping God, but also worshiping other gods. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom of Judah actually fell to um, Babylon in 600 BC. Its people, too, were carried off into captivity, but 70 years later, a remnant of 43,000 Jews were permitted to return and rebuild Jerusalem. So the people who now inhabited the former northern kingdom, the Samaritans, opposed the repatriation of Judah and tried to undermine the attempt to reestablish the nation. And for their part, the people in uh, the south, the um, Judeans, those full-blooded monotheistic Jews, um, hated the mixed marriages and the worship of their northern cousins. So walls of bitterness were erected on both sides and did nothing but continue to grow for the next 550 years. So the people hearing that parable would have had generations of hate for either side. But Jesus isn't giving two separate commands. He's not saying, love your neighbor and your enemy. 
He's giving one command. Love your neighbor even if he's an enemy. So, who are our enemies? And I know you're probably thinking some things. Um, I won't get into those. We're going to let Scripture tell us. We're going to go back uh, to Matthew 5. Now, the first meaning that we can see uh, is in verse 44, and it's in those who persecute you. Do you guys know what persecute means? It means to pursue with harmful intentions. We see it all over the world. People are dying for their faith in Jesus. According to a report that was published in March of 2022 um, by Open Doors USA, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. 360 million Christians last year lived in countries where persecution was significant. Roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned. And another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. In addition to that, more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed. Now, it's not just something that is overseas that we don't experience here in America. You know, in America, last year, there were four church shootings in the year 2022. Four. Persecution doesn't have to just be violent, though. You guys uh, remember the name Jack Phillips? Jack Phillips was the baker who for over a decade has been persecuted because of his faith in Jesus. People have asked him to bake cakes, and he said no because of who his God is. He's still being dragged in and out of court because of his beliefs. Baronelle Stutzman, she was a florist who was actually forced to retire because of those same beliefs. People thought it was um, bigotry or, um, you know, Persecution on her part to not want to be involved in a wedding that wasn't honoring God. Joe Kennedy, he's a football coach from Washington who was actually fired from the school district for having a prayer by himself in the middle of a football field after the games. We see it here at work. I'm sure you've been persecuted at work. Sometimes it's even our own family. And I know it's hard, we, but we were never told life as a Christian would be easy. But as part of our sanctification, it's helping us to become holy as he is holy. So who else? If we look at the second part of verse 45, we see that he makes his sunrise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, the evil and the unjust are people who defy the laws of God. They resist his will. They do not submit to his authority. See, we share this world with people who have not yet submitted to the authority of the Lord God, yet the Lord God stills, still allows them to enjoy his creation. Now, I'd argue that they don't get to enjoy it fully because they don't know the creator. But we are called to love them, and we see it throughout Scripture. We see it in Luke 6.27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. From Proverbs 25.21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. 
The Word of God is how our Lord speaks to us, how He guides us. So we need to be in the Word, learning from the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal to us God's will for our lives. So some of this is part of the how, but before we fully dive in there, let's see who else we could potentially count as our enemy. In verse 46, we see the enemy isn't anyone, is anyone who doesn't love you. Now, if you just love those who love you, you're not loving the way that God commanded. And in verse 47, we can see that the enemy is anyone who is not your brother. If you greet your brothers only, we're not loving the way that God commanded us. So the point seems to be, don't stop loving because the person does things that offend you or dishonor you or hurt your feelings or anger you or disappoint you or frustrate you. Love your enemies means keep on loving them. So how do we love them? Now, I came across a story uh, of a pastor who was actually preaching on this, this same topic. You know, he's sitting there in the pulpit. He expounds on the values of grace and forgiveness to all and how we are called to love our neighbors and our enemies as much as Jesus loves us. The whole congregation is roused to action and filled with the Holy Spirit. The pastor then asks, will you go out into the world and love your enemies? Every hand in the congregation goes up except for one. The pastor sees that it's a little old lady sitting in the front row. He asks the woman, why can't you love your enemies? To which she replies, Pastor, I can honestly say I have no enemies. The pastor says, that's incredible. May I ask how old you are? 96. The pastor says, 96 year old and no enemies? Would you mind sharing how you have achieved this? So she gets up, she totters up to the front of the church, turns around to the congregation and says, I've outlived all those snakes. <laughs> now, now, we all know that we don't love our enemies simply by outliving people that we don't like. So we don't have any enemies. So how do we love our enemies? To see that, let's actually work backwards. We're going to go from uh, 48 up to 43. We're going to actually start in verse 47. You see, it can be as simple as uh, something as simple as greeting them. You know, in verse 47, it says that if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Greeting your non-brothers is one form of the love Jesus has in mind here. Now, that might seem insignificant next to things like persecution uh, or being threatened or even killed, but Jesus means for this text to apply to all of life. So whom do you think, who, sorry, who do you talk with when you leave church? Is it only the people who say hi to you? Is it only your close friends? Is it only those that you know? Jesus says, talk with everyone. Get to know who they are. Talk with those people who are different and may not agree with you on every matter. Jesus doesn't give us license to ignore people who disagree with us. Love your enemy means something as simple as greet them. <clears throat> Second, in verse 45, um, we can see what uh, love is illustrated as with um, it saying, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in this case, <clears throat> excuse me, love is very practical efforts to meet a person's physical need. Sunshine and rain are the two things that we need to grow. So there'll be food and sources for human life. So this is the kind of thing that Paul had in mind when he quoted Proverbs 25, 21 in Romans 12, 20. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, heaping coals on somebody's head doesn't sound very loving. But to someone in this time, in this era of time, what it would have meant is for someone to show or feel remorse. So you're not literally boring coals on somebody's head because that would definitely not be loving, but you're causing them to think, to be introspective, to reflect and feel that remorse because maybe you're showing them the love that they never got. And they're wondering, oh, why is this person different? So loving your enemy means practical acts of helpfulness in the ordinary things of life. God gives his enemies sunshine and rain. You give your enemies food and water. Third, we see in verse 44 that one of the deepest meanings of love for your enemies is praying for them. It says, <clears throat> I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus here, excuse me, Jesus isn't talking about prayer in the future tense. He's not saying, oh, I'll pray for them later. When you, when you think about it, when you remember them, pray. This is actually a present tense verb. And we need to pray and pray now. Prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love because it means that you have to genuinely want something good to happen to them. Sure, you might do nice things, for your enemy without any actual desire that things go well for them. But prayer for them is in the presence of God. And God knows your heart, and prayer is interceding with God on their behalf. Maybe it's for their acceptance of God's call on their life and the repentance of sin. Maybe that they would realize their hardened hearts towards the word of God or towards his teaching. It might be that they will um, stop in their downward spiral of sin or for them to be healed. The prayer that Jesus has in mind here is always for their good. So why do we love them? Now, um, I got a video that we're going to watch. Just to give you a little bit of background, it's actually um, the testimony of my cousin. He's from Texas. Um, he's just a, a remarkable man, and I would say probably one of the most loving people that you'll ever meet. He fully embodies, in my opinion, what it means to love um, your enemies. So, uh, John, John, if you wouldn't mind playing the video. Growing up in this neighborhood, it was just a wonderful a wonderful childhood it really was until <laughs> that day it was a Friday the last school day of the week and when I got off the bus I 
here was this gentleman coming at me from the opposite direction and he stopped me and he said, hey, I'm throwing a party for your dad and by any chance would you be willing to help me with some of the decorations? And of course, back in the 70s, a different time than, than right now, I thought, sure. He uh, had an RV, a little motorhome. I put my things down in the seat behind the door, hopped in the passenger seat, and figured we must be going downtown. But once we had left town, once we were out in the middle of nowhere, he pulled over on the side of the road and told me, he said, I think I've missed a turn. The next thing I knew, he pulled me away from the window into the middle of the, the RV, uh, forced me basically onto my back, looking up at him and began to stab me in the chest. He literally stood back up and, and said, son, I'm gonna take you somewhere and I'm gonna drop you off. We turn left onto this uh, old Caliche country road, what we affectionately call Alligator Alley. He stopped the RV and he pointed at a tree. He said, why don't you sit down over there by the tree? And while I was looking down, he must have pulled the gun that I had seen the outlines of in his pocket and he aimed it right at my left temple. That was the last thing I remember. Do you know your full name? Mm -hmm. What is your full name? Christopher Hugh Carrier. And Chris, do you know what day this is? This is Friday, isn't it? Today is Thursday, uh -huh. December the 26th. When I woke up six days later, I remember my dad flat out told me, he said, Chris, you were kidnapped. You were shot through the head and you were left to die in the Florida Everglades and you were missing for six days. The rhythm at home was drastically different. You know, dad had a gun in his closet. Police were there, the radios were there, but there were those moments in which I would wake up in sheer terror thinking that I was in my bedroom. You know, could just picture that man walking through the house and cornering me in that room and coming to finish what he had started. It was a very tough moment to see this new normal that I was gonna to have to contend with. I don't know exactly what the trigger was, but it, that transformation began to happen in me in which I realized if God in his providence can allow me to go through all of those things that I went through and protected me from being kidnapped, stabbed, shot, left to die in the Everglades. Well, he's, he's earned my trust. This is where you're gonna find that security that you're looking for. I couldn't find it in a community of friends or institutions that said, this will be okay, don't worry. I only found it through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's amazing how you see what God has ordained sometimes years or even decades after you know, here, my wife and I, I, I had gone on and, and finished school, and uh, we were in the process of, of moving back to Texas when I received a phone call. 
It's a major sharer from the Coral Gables Police. And he told me, he said, one of our old chiefs had come across David McAllister in a nursing home in North Miami. Would you like to go meet with him face to face? Because if you would, I can make those arrangements. This is the definition of awkward. What do you say to a guy who the last time you saw him put a bullet through your head? I sat down and I told him, I said, Mr. McAllister, I'd like you to know what's really been kind of the source of my strength through all of this. And I asked him, just point, point blank, would, would you allow me to share that hope and, and love with you? And he said, sure. We prayed together and we walked through that. And praise the Lord, I think that week of visiting him two or three times left an impression on him. And so I shared the gospel as best I could. It was just a beautiful, surreal moment of, of just being able to say, Mr. McAllister, I want you to know there's nothing between you and me except our newfound friendship. I want you to know I forgive you. And I want our, our friendship to go beyond this place. And Mr. McAllister, blind as he was and, and weak, rolled over in that bed, grabbed my hand as if he could have seen it. And with, through the tears and the difficulty, said, I'm sorry. And like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, I only had one opportunity and he took advantage of it to pray to receive Christ. So did David McAllister. I didn't have any forewarning of what was going to happen. But I can say without any doubt, what God did in my life has given me hope that there is nothing in this world that His grace is not bigger than. So that's why we love our enemies. That's, why, that's where our power comes from. It, it comes from the Lord that we love. We love them because we never know how God plans to use us in their lives. See, my cousin could have harbored hate for the man that tried to kill him for the rest of his life, and he would have been justified by the world. Nobody would have batted an eye. They would have been like, I'm right there with you. When he was asked if he wanted to visit that man, he could have said, no, I'm good. I've forgiven him, but I don't want to meet him. It's probably what I would have done. But he followed the word of the Lord. And that man accepted Jesus. That's what we should want for our enemies. That they become our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what the Lord did for us. We see it here in Romans 5, 8 and 10. It says, but God chose his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Don't you see? We were once enemies of God. Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
He loved us. God loved us enough to send his son so that those of us who are called according to his righteousness and are born again through faith in him don't have to spend eternity apart from him. We love because he first loved us, which means that the command to love our enemies is a command to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and not to conform to this world. The command to love our enemies is a command to find our hope and our satisfaction in the Lord our God, not in the way people treat us. As John Piper said, loving your enemies doesn't earn you the reward of heaven. Treasuring the reward of heaven empowers you to love your enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, um, we come before you tonight and just ask that you, you soften our hearts, that you give us your heart for those who may be persecuting us, for those who we don't necessarily see eye to eye with, for those who we may have um, ignored and not talked to for years because of something they said or did to us in the past. Father, I pray that you give us the strength to let that all go, to love our enemies as you loved us, to tell them the good news of your son, to invite them to be our family, in our family with you. And Father, if there is anybody here tonight who is not a part of your family, who has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, God, I ask that tonight is the night because we are never guaranteed tomorrow. We aren't even guaranteed what's going to happen after we walk out of this building, Father. You and you alone know the plan for our life. So again, if tonight, if anybody is feeling called, God, let this be the night. Bring them into your family, Father, so that we can rejoice in you saving them through your son and them no longer being an enemy of you, but part of your family. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.